0: We are continuing in our series called Presence, where we explore some of the foundational Christian practices that we do that bring the presence of God closer into our lives. So some of the ones we've done in weeks leading up to this are prayer and worship and scripture reading. The one we're going to do today is the one that I think is among the most communal practices that we can do Communion. So you all may be familiar with this practice. If you have been a Christian for a long time, or if you've even just been adjacent to Christianity in our culture for a long time, you probably recognize what I mean when I say communion, even though it may be uh, called by many different names and different traditions. I do think, though, it is helpful from time to time for people who are very familiar with the practice to take a step back and realize what that practice actually looks like to someone who is not familiar with, uh, with what we do week in, week out. So there's an example uh, that resonated with me when I was a child. So I did not grow up as a Christian uh, in this country I was a Muslim for uh, almost my Entire childhood and I Encountered like my Understanding of communion much in the same way That other people around the world do Who aren't familiar with it and there's a scene from the movie Gandhi from uh, Several uh, from a few decades ago That, that kind of captures How uh, how it struck me the first time Are you a Christian? Yes yes uh, I'm a Christian I know a Christian Ah, she drinks blood, blood of Christ, every Sunday. So that really was my kind of reaction when I had, I think, the first time that I ever went to a, a, a Christian church was for um, my friend's dad's funeral when I was a little kid. And they did this practice, and I asked, like, hey, what, what's going on? And I was like, you do what now? That was my my reaction after it was done. And look where I am all these years later talking to you about this very thing. So the, you know, the, we have uh, collectively defined this practice in many different ways and uh, you you know depending on the church tradition you came from you you may recognize it by by some of these names right so if you come from uh Perhaps a Catholic background or more of a high church background, you might use the term Eucharist, which is Greek for thanksgiving or sacrament, meaning sacred or holy. If you come from a more low church background, like, like Baptist uh, or a n- non-denominational evangelical church, you may be familiar with calling it Communion. Uh, if you're from a movement that's like, no, we got to do it like, like the Bible does it, then you may call it the Lord's Supper. A lot of house churches may call it breaking of the bread. And uh, then I guess hipster churches may call it love feast, right? So these are all different terms. Perhaps Maybe we would call it love feast when whenever Roberto's tacos are here too. We're like, okay, this is this is communion in the context of a love feast. These are all actually different words that New Testament writers themselves associate with taking communion uh, in various parts of Scripture. And throughout my talk today, uh, you will pick up on each of these themes and like a, a connection of how the, this, the, each of these terms actually connect to the significance of this practice that we do. There is. Um, there are also a whole host of questions that often come up around communion, especially if you know you have been doing this practice for a very long time. You may have been involved in many church discussions about the precise nature of what it means to do communion, what's happening when you're doing it, uh, how should you do it, who should be there when you do it, and there are, there are all, all kinds of ways that there, there are questions and debates that have occurred throughout history, right? So some of these, maybe you, you've also been involved in discussions or wrestled with yourself, and maybe some of these questions were like, I didn't know that was a question. Did people actually debate that intensely? And the answer is yes. For each one of these, through Throughout history, there have been very serious debates about the precise nature, for example, of in what way is Jesus present in the bread and the juice or the wine that, that we're consuming? Uh, what, and this is a debate about just the, the mechanics of how Jesus can become present in those cases. There have been, there are churches who have split over whether they do one communal cup together or do uh, many cups separately? I believe it was the Protestant reformers Calvin and Zwingli who first debated gluten-free or not gluten-free, and uh, church has debated again to this day. Look at our sign of reconciliation that we offer both, depending on uh, what you prefer. But these, are, these have been very serious questions, and I, and I think it's, it's right to think of them as serious questions. I'm not saying that, that it was absurd for people to have a Opinions on these topics. I have opinions on these topics, and you may too. And what I'm saying for today is I'm not going to answer all of these questions. More importantly, my goal in our discussion about communion is to provide you with some good context on this practice to help you and give you the tools you need to decide for yourself. And your family or your smaller community or us all of us together on how we want to think about communion how we want to practice it together how we want to get the most out of this very special thing that we do so that that's what we're going to focus on and these kinds of questions I think can be in the background while while we're going through this journey so a good place to start is probably the, the same starting point that everybody here would have if you've been here week after week. So we, uh, the way we practice communion, you all, uh, if you've been here, you will recall that um, at the end of uh, our time together after the sermon, We do communion together, and we actually, uh, as part of our our liturgy, read a certain passage together each time uh, to, to prepare ourselves for it. So here's the passage that we read together. Again, it should be very familiar. Last week... Pastor Marcus uh, basically paraphrased the whole thing from memory, for example, because the slides weren't weren't, uh, up when he was saying it, or he wasn't looking at it. So this is how familiar it is for us, right? So it says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. So with this passage, I think it's, uh, it's easy to think, perhaps you do or have, that this, this is a, a passage that comes from the Gospels, right? This is quoting Jesus. And so it's, it's natural to think, oh, then maybe this is from the, the stories in the Gospels around the, the Last Supper in Jesus's life. This passage is actually not from the Gospels. It is from the Apostle Paul, And he says it in a letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And that is worth calling out for for several different reasons. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But one of the the first things to to, uh, call out is that this passage then— comes up in a context, a wider context and a wider argument that the Apostle Paul is making in his letter in 1 Corinthians. And this passage here is beautiful. We reflect on it every week. It helps us prepare and transition to our time together in communion. It actually comes up in quite a jarring context in 1 Corinthians, if you remember it. Let's read that. Let's zoom out to why Paul would have said this in the first place. And then we're going to use that surrounding context to unpack exactly what the stakes are with how we do communion together and what we're saying to each other when we're doing communion. So here, zooming out, so right before that that passage, here's what Paul says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. The Lord, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Then he goes into this passage that that we are talking about, okay? So so it goes through this, and this is how he closes this section. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Whew! we went from breaking bread to breaking bad real quick. So, so what happened? What, how did we get from this tradition that Jesus is describing to this very angry section of Paul's letter? So this is what we're going to try to unpack is what's going wrong there and why does it matter so much? Why does it have Paul so upset? So to do that, first, we should start with where the Apostle Paul actually got this tradition from, this tradition that he says that was passed on to him that he is now passing on to them. So that tradition does appear in the Gospels. Not exactly the way the Apostle Paul described it, but it does. So some of the different, uh, the, the synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe uh, this Last Supper and use some variation of this discussion. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. And then he g- gave thanks, gave it to them, and they all drank from the cup. Okay, so then he, so very similar language to what we're talking about. There is a lot of debate that you may be familiar with around when the gospels were written. The range can be very wide from like within the like first century give or take. But what there is less debate about is when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is what what scholars often call an undisputed Pauline, which sounds very powerful. But really what it just means is that generally the consensus is we're sure that the Apostle Paul, the actual historical figure Paul, wrote that letter. And it's generally dated uncontroversially within just a couple decades of Jesus' life on earth. So that means... Regardless of when you think the Gospels were written, here is Paul, somebody who didn't actually interact with Jesus during Jesus' lifetime or with Jesus' disciples during Jesus' lifetime. And yet, nevertheless, he is very aware of this tradition— around the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper, that he can even describe it in detail in his own letters in a very similar way to how the gospel describes it. That tells us that the Apostle Paul is working from a very early tradition. So he is passing on to the church in Corinth something that we can infer must have been going on from the very beginning of the Jesus movement. When we talk about ancient practices that we all do that have a history, this is one of the most Ancient ones. That's that's what we're talking about here, and this tradition itself comes from Passover, right? When Jesus, during the Last Supper, was with his disciples together, there was uh, it occurred in the meal occurred in the context of Passover. Now, remember the um, the the phrase Passover comes from the uh, the celebration of God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, where an angel of death came through and killed the firstborns of every household of um, the neighborhoods for Israel when they were in Egypt. And the the angel of death passed over Israelite households that were faithful to God's warning by um, smearing the blood of a lamb uh, above their, their door frames. And so that, that was their, their sign of faithfulness. And so Jesus' celebrated this Passover as uh, any good Jew in his circles would. And um, in that, that tradition or that, that Passover meal that it is, it is it, the tradition itself is steeped in symbolism. There is the Passover lamb, there is blood, There's, there are many practices actually within the, the whole like Passover liturgy that have, that have great symbolic meaning. And that tradition has also been carried on uh, since, since their time, and it, it predated Jesus as well. One of the things to call out, too, is that as a side note, I think it's, just, it's worth bringing up, so you can have it as a frame of reference. There is some debate about whether that last supper that Jesus and his disciples had was a Passover meal. So was it a proper celebration of Passover, or did they do it on Passover Eve? I'm sharing this now just so you have context if it it ever comes up or in your own reading of the Bible, you come across this issue. The reason that the issue comes up Is that you have the you have three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that seem to generally talk about Jesus' last meal as if it was a Passover meal, pretty straightforwardly. For example, the Gospel of Luke says, and Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. And in context, it is this meal that we're talking about. There's a difference though, where in the Gospel of John which is different from the other three Gospels in many ways, and one of this is um, the Gospel of John seems to be uh, making it very clear in multiple passages that the meal that they had was actually the day before Passover, so Passover Eve. There's so an example of that in John 13 where it says it was, it was just before the Passover festival, and goes on to say the evening meal was in progress, and it's describing the Last Supper. So there are many different ways to think about um, how, how you hold those those two perspectives together. Uh, one perspective is that maybe one of those groups was just wrong. They were wrong in their details. They misremembered or something. Uh, There are other approaches that try to say that maybe they didn't get it wrong uh, and to say that um, they were operating from different calendars. And they say there's Roman calendars and Jewish calendars and there's Roman time and Jewish time. And uh, other takes try to say, oh, no, if you translate it the right way, it's not really the day before. It's just a phrasing or it's how they would have done holidays back then. Uh, I find uh, all of those takes that I just mentioned unsatisfying. My personal take is actually that uh, the Gospel of John, I think in multiple places, uh, plays around, plays flexibly with chronology. Like John is, I don't see John as trying to create a very structured series of events so you know, like in a journalistic account, then what happened, then what happened, then what happened. John actually does things where he shifts the chronology if the story can convey a deeper symbolic meaning. And What you see that's unique to the gospel of John is how much it calls out and draws parallels to Jesus and him dying on the cross being a parallel to the Passover lamb being sacrificed in preparation for the Passover meal. So technically occurring the day before. So what I think is happening is John is making this powerful, beautiful, significant connection that endures for us even to this day of thinking of Jesus as epitomizing that Passover sacrifice that culminates in our freedom from slavery. That, that's my perspective. I mean, honestly, like you, you may have a different perspective. Other teachers at Spark may too. Either way, the point that I would like to make is that whether it was Passover or Passover Eve, what we're talking about is a Passover-type meal. That, that's what was going on. And this Passover-type meal has uh, a... a, a the early followers of Jesus really ran with uh, with this tradition that Jesus had established. So Jesus took those elements, he added new layers of meaning onto it for his disciples. It's good to note too, though, it's not like Jesus replaced. Passover. It's not like once they, once uh, the early Jewish followers of Jesus started doing communion, they stopped celebrating Passover. We have many examples uh, in the Book of Acts, for example, of the apostles continuing to, as good Jews, uh, practice Passover and practice communion all the time. Those are not mutually exclusive. But what certainly is happening for people like the Apostle Paul is that his encounter with the risen Jesus permanently changed the depth of meaning that he gets from Passover. That's what Jesus did for him. And what we see too is there, there is this uh, other puzzles that, that come up if you're trying to go from this Passover meal that Jesus had and transition to like how the early church did their communion meal um, in perpetuity until now. So if you had just heard of the jesus tradition from the gospels and jesus says hey do this as often uh as as you take it in remembrance of me you wouldn't from there automatically know okay that means we should do it every sunday like all the time because really he took a passover meal and added this layer of meaning onto it one would think then christians who uh who jewish followers of jesus who believed in jesus would uh would do it every passover Or at the least, you might think if you had to pick a day of the week that you would do it, you would do it on Friday, which is the time that they, the day of the week that they actually had this meal. And yet, here we are doing it on Sunday, every Sunday. And that is something, too, we're going to come back to. It's a significant, purposeful, deliberate move that we made. And it, again, shows up very early in the Jesus tradition. So here in the book of Acts, which is a sequel to the gospel of Luke, very early in the book, when it is describing the early days of the Jesus movement, we get this description of how the early followers of Jesus are living out many of these practices that we've been talking about in this series, including prayer and scripture reading and things like that. So here in Acts 2, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the those who were being saved. Now that's, that's more like the beautiful passages and ideas that, that we've talked about. It seems really cool what, what they were doing. And again, if you, if you have uh, kept 1 Corinthians 11 in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, well, like what's, what, how, why is it so different in 1 Corinthians 11 than what they're describing here? And I think we can start unpacking that. One of the ways that we need to begin to understand the context for what communion would have meant to these people is a principle of you are who you eat with. And I think that it's, it's worth talking about this in detail, uh, particularly because um, we are in a cultural context specifically around, like, Communal behaviors and in particular, like communal eating that is far removed from the cultural context that this practice would have come from, so first, uh, just just to understand our own context and then map it back to where it would have been in jesus day. Uh, you may have felt uh, or known that that America is a very individualistic country, meaning we when we make important decisions about our lives or we just even like think about who we are as a human being or a mission or purpose. We tend to think about it in very individualistic terms and we orient our relationships that way. There's a lot of very good economics research that has tried to quantify this phenomenon of how individualistic or collectivistic cultures are. And in this, uh, this, um, these analyses, you can see. So this is, the, this is a scale that ranks uh, on a continuum of individualistic versus communal. This is a, a rank ordering of the highest scores to lowest scores. And of course, you see who's number one? USA as the most individualistic culture on this planet. I come from uh, a, I grew up in a household that was both American and Pakistani. And Pakistan is actually towards the bottom. Of all of the the countries that are ranked on this in their individualism so Pakistan is on the scale a very communal country and I know that and I've had conversations with many of you especially uh, our sparkers who are for example Asian American or have come from immigrant families living through the tension of belonging to very individualistic uh, belonging to a very individualistic culture and coming from a very communalistic culture. And I'm actually not here to say that one is inherently better than the other. I think each one brings its own tensions. And those of us who operate in both worlds have always had to operate in them in that way with that tension. What I'm hoping to do too is to bring that tension that exists onto the Bible when you read it and onto your understanding of communion as it's occurring there in the way that we do it here. So this is the, I think, especially in the last few years, there have been many good stories Actually, that I think have done a great job of, of uh, conveying the tension. So Disney has forayed into this space with Raya and the Last Dragon. There was a movie, um, the uh, award-winning movie, The Farewell, that that captured this this challenge of um, you know how, how to how to navigate uh, intergenerational, intercultural conflicts. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is very much uh, about the that those themes as well. And Shang Chi, which came out very recently, again, it takes this 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 tension that we're describing and puts it into a superhero context. My point is is that Aquafina is actually in a lot of movies. was that that true? I think she's in the James Bond movie too. I just, I just, I'm assuming she is with how much work she's been putting in. the The actual point is that that hopefully it's it's clear that there, there is this tension that that exists that you may take for granted depending on how often you're not confronted with these differences, and yet even with All of these, uh, like the vast gap between our individualistic culture and the, the communalistic culture that would have existed for Jesus and his disciples. Even then, I think many of us intuitively grasp that there is something inherently communal about eating right? Like, like uh, I think probably the clearest indicator is the pity that you have on your face when you see somebody eating alone in a restaurant. That is you, despite your, your heroic individualistic mindset, thinking like, oh, something is missing there that they are eating by themselves, even though they they could be perfectly happy. When, uh, when I was in college at the University of Illinois, there was a, a, an era, I actually don't know if it's still this way, uh, on a lot of college campuses, but some Christians were, or they, they felt like it was their calling to canvas the quad on a regular basis to target individuals, to have a conversation with them and introduce them to the Lord. In order to maximize your time doing that, the right, you have to like, like scan a quad and think, who is a good target for me to have this conversation with? I looked like a great target. One, I am brown, so the odds are I'm not Christian. They were wrong. At that point, I had been a Christian for uh, a couple years. But I looked like I was a Muslim, uh, and I still do. So that was one aspect of it. The other thing, too, is that I often like to eat alone alone. On the quad. I have what is, uh, I would call, a resting introvert face. Like, it's like, I look like I'm alone, and I'm fine. There's no problem here. I'm, I'm okay. But they were, and I've, I, ta- I had conversations with them, because I literally would get targeted, I, I think, like, five times a semester. like It was like they had a script. Somebody was teaching them how to find me in all these campuses, uh, or across the campus. And when we, when we would talk about it, what they, like, part of their their psychology of choosing the targets was they thought that somebody who's eating by themselves has a bigger chance of being lonely, right? Like having something missing in their lives that then I, they could Jesus juke them and, like, you know, <laughs> help them with whatever they're missing in their lives. This is like it speaks to this reality, right? That table for one is there's something like fundamentally wrong when when that has happened. So there so that means like that should be your starting point to grasp just how seriously like you think that we take that kind of thing seriously, like how there's a deficit when you're eating alone. Imagine a culture in which who you ate with said something about your identity. It says something about who you are. And what you care about. Those are the contexts that these meals are occurring in. And when you have that context in mind, then some of the accusations against Jesus start to gain new layers of meaning. So, for example, a common accusation that people would have against Jesus to try to discredit him was to talk about who he spent his time with and who he ate with. So the Gospel of Luke points out, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Because if you do, well, you must uh, condone what they do. You must be like them. After all, you are who you eat with. The gospel of Luke, like, adds on later, lots of the, the other gospels have examples of this as well. This, Jesus, this is his own self-description, including his uh, opponents' critics, uh, criticisms of him. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is what's at stake. It is your reputation that's on the line when you're doing this. And this is why, too, like, the, the stakes can get very high for someone like the apostle Paul. So here is an example in a letter that, that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia where he talks about ca- having to call out another apostle, apostle Peter, who um, here is na- he names a Cephas. Okay, so this is what he says in a letter that was circulated publicly and we have preserved to this day. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Who taught him to eat with the Gentiles? Jesus did. That was where it came from. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. In that context, Paul also says, he says that this behavior, what they're doing, threatens the truth of the gospel. That is how serious the stakes are in this situation. So now, when you have that in mind, does it make more sense why Paul is so mad and worried about what's going on in Corinth? So let's go back. So we're reading this, uh, like this, this passage that we talked about where Paul lays it on him. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. And you can see the language that he's using there. He's worried about divisions he 's worried about some people being hungry there is a deficit for some and some people being drunk there is a surplus a lack of self control for them and He says that this behavior humiliates those who have not so this is this is a, a terrible breakdown in a, like a fundamental relationship of what it means for us to be a family together that's going on. That's why his concluding advice is, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather together, you should all eat together. Together. That is the emphasis that he is providing here. This is actually the modern equivalent of what we call lunch shaming. So for those of you who maybe are, are, you have kids who are in, uh, in schools and especially public schools or if you're just familiar with the issue, um, there, lots of schools have programs where uh, if you can't uh, afford a lunch, the school offers like free or reduced lunch. The problem in which, like many, with many good policies, there are... Well, what economists call uh, perverse incentives or unintended consequences there where um, then if if that is the the policy then the kids who do get those free lunches it's easy to identify them right it is a clear signal oh you are a have-not and there is a lot of stigma that comes from that, and in fact, there's so much stigma that actually those kinds of programs don't get as much uh, uptake from like from families and schools as much as one would think that they would. So actually, a lot of schools to try to correct for that, offer free or reduced lunch to all students, so that anybody, no matter what they have, uh, can eat together. Right? There's an opportunity for, uh, for for them to share in it. Right? And so that's that's what happens at our kids' school. Our kids love them cheesy pull-aparts. That's uh, that's part of their routine, right? These are examples of how you try to rectify exactly the kind of just horrific shaming that is going on in the church in Corinth. There is a second part of this, then, that is related uh, that is both a a challenge uh, and a calling for us. It can be both comforting but also disturbing, Communion is one of those uh, most powerful spiritual experiences that remind us that we're not alone. There are possibly uh, billions of people around the world who are taking communion with you today. One will do it in a little bit. How many of them do you think of as part of God's family? How many of them do you think of as part of your family? Uh, Is God's family uh, only as big as your political beliefs or your doctrinal beliefs? What are your boundary markers? We get it that for them, it was tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. But what are yours? What are the barriers that stop you from eating and communing with people who are not like you? Do you see how this is a challenge? Because everything I see in God's story is that God's dinner table has way more guests than my little sectarian mind can fathom. There is a parable that Jesus tells in the gospels called the parable of the great banquet, where this banquet holder uh, invites everybody to come to the party. And it is a, the, the parable is a story of what the kingdom of God is like when it comes to earth. And in that story, the, the, banquet, uh, the, the banquet hall owner throws, uh, he invites uh, all these people in his own circles. And they all give excuses to not be there. And then he says, all right, you know what? Go out and invite those people who are further out. The disenfranchised, so the, the, the poor, people with disabilities, the people on, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of uh, fringes from, from society. And they come. But even then, there's a line that the banquet owner says, where he says, and there is still room. There is, from beginning to end, a through line about what the kingdom of God is like. And that through line is, there is still room. God's love is bigger than you can imagine. It is bigger than you can make it. And communion pushes us to have a heart like God's heart in a world that says you do you and you don't owe nobody nothing communion says otherwise in a world that says block those who bother you or cut off those who don't make you happy communion says otherwise communion is passover it's freedom from slavery into god's family for the reconciliation of the world Communion is sacred, thin space. Thin space is the word that we use to describe when we feel God's presence just breaking through to us in a much closer way than we normally do in our day-to-day lives. It is the presence of Jesus in our midst so close you can taste it. Communion is Eucharist. It is thanksgiving for what God has given us. And therefore, what we can give others. Communion is tradition. It is locking us in to our ancestors in the faith who got us to this point and our descendants in the faith who will push us closer and closer to God in the future. Communion is somber reflection of the evil we inflict upon each other, epitomized in Jesus's death on the cross. But communion is also a glorious celebration that death is not the end of the story. Communion is a protest. It is, as we say, it's a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. It says, no, you don't just shrug your shoulders at death and destruction and say, I guess that's how the way things are. It is a proclamation that Jesus may have died on around Passover time on Friday, but he rose to life on Sunday. And we gather for communion on what day? Sunday. When we get together, we are saying to each other and to the world, we are here right now because we've decided that love and life triumph over death and destruction, and we're all in this victory together. All of us together. Now, our traditional time together where we take communion. And we go back to the tradition that Jesus originated for us. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as is our practice, all are welcome to the table.